Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. They ended up framing the column and putting it on their wall. This family did, the, the mom with the triplets. And the triplets, as they grew up, they would point to the picture of their grandmother and say, that's grandma. And to me, that's the legacy. The legacy of having written about and captured lives in a way that is meaningful for people. Some people might remember it, some people won't, but that's what the legacy is. It's not some grand legacy in Memphis or whatever else. I'm just a sports writer after all. Life's hard, but when you find your path in life, you'll find fulfillment. I'm Sam Coates, and welcome to the Driven By Podcast. On this show, I talk to people with purpose. And hearing these stories and conversations, my hope is that you'll see your path, which will bring out the best in you. Follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram, at Sam P. Coates, and learn more about my guests and subscribe to the show at drivenbypodcast.com. My guest this week is Jeff Calkins. This episode is a fun and valuable conversation where we cover falling in love with stories while battling leukemia as a kid, leaving the law firm, then ending up in Anniston, Alabama, what sports can do for a city, how we learn to write, finding your own voice, and more. After stints in Washington, D.C. as a lawyer, then Anniston, Alabama, and Fort Lauderdale, Jeff came to Memphis, Tennessee in 1996 as a sports columnist for the Commercial Appeal. Jeff now is the lead columnist for the Daily Memphian and also hosts his own radio show, The Jeff Calkins Show. Jeff's been named the best sports columnist in the country five times by Associated Press sports editors, and he's also received many more awards. Please enjoy this week's conversation with Jeff Calkins. Hey, everybody. I have one last quick cool company to tell you about. Are you like a majority of Americans who love the idea of working from home when you want to? If you do, then I bet you'll like to check out havenspaces.org. Havenspace lets you design the outdoor office of your dreams, but we make it easy and build and ship directly to you. Go to havenspaces.org. That's H-A-V-E-N-S-P-A-C-E-S.org to learn more and see how to connect with us. Full disclosure, I do own this company, but I'm willing to put it out here on this podcast because I know it'll make your life better. And they look pretty awesome too. Now we're going to get back to the show. Jeff, good to see you. It's good to be here. And I'm curious, has there ever been a point in your career where you felt like you needed to take a more aggressive stance or more aggressive tone by the work you do with your writing 
you've talked about some of the journalists that you see like Kornheiser and Wilbon and people like that. And you've just talked about the way others are and the way that you are, but you also talk about how you draw out humanity and empathy and stories and how that has appealed to you in the past. But I'm curious, do you ever feel like being invested into the community or into the lives of people? Do you feel like has that ever cost you any career recognition for your work? Oh, no, not at all. I actually, I used to be, uh, when I came to Memphis, I was much harder edged when I was a younger columnist. And I, you know, I remember my first year here, I wrote a column about Fred Smith. Um, and in Memphis, you can't, Fred Smith was had the lease to the Liberty Bowl because he'd had a, a you know, minor league football team that had gone under and he still had this lease to the Liberty Bowl. And I just got it in my head that I should rip Fred Smith for holding on to this lease to the Liberty Bowl. And I was, I just sort of thought that in order to be a certified, legitimate columnist, you had to, you know, wake up and destroy someone every day. And, and I've learned that, yeah, there's still, you have to do that when it is a case, you know, when the time calls for it, but there's plenty of that out in the world. And that, that I'm really best suited to celebrate life where I can. And that, and particularly it's possible that in a community different than Memphis, I would be otherwise. But I also think in Memphis, people tend to need more lifting up than crushing. So that's part of it. And then finally, in terms of recognition, you know, I mean, probably the most famous successful sports writer out there right now, and he's no really not much of a sports writer anymore, is Mitch Albom, who, you know, wrote all his columns with the Detroit Free Press and now basically does best-selling, somewhat schmaltzy life books, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and there's nothing, Tuesdays with Maury wasn't a wild success because he was ripping up Maury. It was because he was drawing transcendent life lessons. And I think that's, in fact, what people really like to read and are drawn to. Yeah. It sounded like that when you were a kid, you didn't sound like an aggressive kid or even the way you described yourself in your 20s, 30s. I mean, is that correct? I'm not a natural brawler. I was not put on this earth to brawl. I am one of nine children and I'm eighth of nine. And one of the things you learn when you're eighth of nine is how to negotiate your way and deal with people's personalities and get along. And so my best attribute as the eighth of nine was I was flexible and easy to get along with and all of that. I made my mother laugh and that kind of thing. And so that was one of my skills and I try to get along with people and I would rather write about something happy than something miserable. But beyond that, but I, 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 I pursue the stories that I write uh, as aggressively as is required, I guess. Yeah. I guess what I meant was you don't come across through your writing and through the things that you've talked about, like you really have a chip on your shoulder. And that's, I guess, what I meant. Well, I only do, it's funny because I have a chip on my shoulder on behalf of the city of Memphis. It's weird you say that because right now I'm writing a, I'm writing a column all about Memphis's sports chip on its shoulder, which is well and duly earned. So it's funny because I grew up in Buffalo and now I'm in Memphis and those cities are not alike in many ways, but exactly alike in a certain way. And that is that they tend to be dismissed by people who don't live there. And so my biggest chip on my shoulder really is 
about Memphis and about people who don't understand Memphis, who love to trash Memphis because there's a lot of them out there. Yeah. I know you get a lot of stuff, so it's not like you probably read it, but I told you when I asked you, I'm not a huge sports guy, but some of the things I did read leading up to our conversation is just Memphis being more on the map now more than ever regarding sports. Is there any fulfillment that you feel personally just about where Memphis was before you got here? First of all, I do notice a dramatic difference that when I came here, and I tell the story a lot, I went to symphony with my parents and at the intermission, this is the first weekend I was here, I started talking to the people next to us and they asked us two questions that I would not have expected to be asked. One was, have you found a church home? And that's not a question you get up north. And then the second question was, why did you move to Memphis? But it was said in the, in the fashion of why the hell did you move to Memphis? And I really think that was when I came here, the sort of general approach of Memphians to Memphis. Now, people will still say that we have a chip on our shoulder, whether we have an inferiority complex. I think we do have a chip on our shoulder, but people will say, oh yeah, Memphis has an inferiority complex. I don't think that's true. anymore. I think we say it out of habit. I think if anything, we're boosterish about all the ways in which we are unique. You know, we're now to the point where the soccer team was named, you know, 901, the area code, nine Memphis 901 FC. The 901 is everywhere. The Believe Memphis is everywhere. And some of that had to do with the transformation of downtown and everything else. But I think some of the branding absolutely had to do with sports and with the Grizzlies in particular. And I don't take much credit for that, except I take a little only in the sense that when the Grizzlies were moving here, there was a huge civic brawl over whether to pay for a new arena. And one can argue either side of that, and that's fine. I respect people on both sides, but I was very clearly, you have to build the arena and have to do this. And yeah. there was a county commissioner, the vote, the city council was always going to vote to do it, but there was city county commission was very close. And at least one of the county commissioners said that he made up his mind which way to vote when he was reading my column that morning. And so I take some small degree of pride in in that and in the fact that the Grizzlies have been an important part of the rebranding and the, and the transformation in Memphis's self-image. But I mostly feel lucky to have been around for so many wonderful things to write about rather than, than whatever role I had. Because when you got here, what, I mean, when you first came to Memphis, you said the chicks game got postponed because there was ruts in the outfield or something. I mean, uh, yeah, I was here at that point. I was covering the Florida Marlins for a paper in Fort Lauderdale. And I came here, this is my first trip to Memphis. And there was a game between the chick for between the Royals and the Marlins, an exhibition game on Easter weekend. And it was camp. It was called because there were ruts in the outfield because the irrigation system had been put in and it wasn't properly. And the major leaguers said, we're not going to play on this field. And people are outraged and they were throwing beer and whatever else. And I got hit with a beer on my shoulder. And that was like, what kind of hell of a place this is. And then, I, you know, they didn't play the game. Then in my, my interview trip to come back, John Stan, who was the sports editor at the time, took me to, he took me to a Memphis Jackson state basketball game at the pyramid. And then he took me to a river Kings game in the dark semi lit mid South Coliseum with a little, you know, tiny little internal blimp radio operated that can drop coupons on people's heads. Yeah. And I was coming from a place where all four major league sports, I was being offered a, a column to stay. And I 
when I took the job at Memphis, I think my sports editor in Fort Lauderdale thought I was driving my career off a cliff, but it has been dramatically different and has been transformed, starting with the Redbirds downtown, you know, AutoZone Park, and then the Grizzlies and the Calipari era and all of that. And it's been, the golf tournament has been elevated uh, to a world golf championship. There's been a lot of good stuff that's happened here. I mean, then you just got to ride all this momentum and that was right before you got here. It it was sort of a nadir when I got here, like, because when I got here, Memphis had just been trying to get this NFL football team for decades. And they had just found out that they were not going to get the team, that it was going to Jacksonville and Carolina. And then secondly, then Nashville got the team. And that was a hell of a blow because that closed the door for forever. So I would say that was kind of the nadir. That's when I, that was when I first got here. And then Larry Finch was fired, a civic legend fired, and there were all kinds of racial repercussions and undertones to that. And so it was a low moment when I got here, but it has been since then a series of not, not uninterrupted success, but certainly that's been the trajectory. Curious to go way back. And I don't know if you've talked about it more since, but you said a lot of people don't know that you had leukemia as a kid. And you talked about where your love for stories started was when your mother would bring the typewriter into the hospital and you were able, I guess, to either talk out loud to her or you were able to use it yourself. Yeah. So I, when I was in third grade, I was diagnosed with leukemia and my mom, this was back in the sixties. And so my mom, she talked about it at the time. And she said, I asked her later, should I put her on the radio at one point here? Cause I do a radio show. And I asked her about it. She said, yeah. She said, I thought it would have been better if you'd been hit by a truck because everybody died at that point who had leukemia. I mean, that's the way it worked. Everybody died. But my dad was also a doctor and they found a new regimen. And it was a regimen. It's a small world. And it was a regimen that was being, you know, cooked up in New York. Yes. And in Boston. Yes. But also uh, here at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And So I'm one of the sort of earlier wave of survivors from childhood leukemia. But when I was in the hospital, mom would bring a typewriter in and she'd sit there and I would dictate stories and she'd type them up and she would send them back to my third grade class. And then they would all write stories and send them back to me. So that's sort of what I think about. I started thinking about myself as a writer then. It's funny because this is the kind of classy writer I was. This here, we're coming to my home office. This is a journal from seventh grade. And my English teacher made me keep it every day, Mr. Alexandrovich. And so we grew up on a little farm and we had all kinds of baby animals, but we also had raised standard poodles. My mom did. 40 acres, right? Yeah, about. And so my mom had, uh, with poodles, you went, when they get to be a certain age, you, you'd have to chop off their tails, half of their tails. So it must have been that on... May 19th, 1974, we had docked Poodle's Tales because the very last entry in this journal, it's a tail, a Poodle <laughs> tail in a baggie stapled in. Got... And then to prove the kind of classy writer I was and remain, a pun. This is the tail's end, it says. <laughs> so, uh, there you have it. That's how I wound up my journal. So I've been telling bad puns, made a career of bad puns ever since. <laughs> They'd probably come after you today if you did that, right? I'd probably come after me now. Yeah, I, well, if I show that at a Rotary Club occasionally, they people don't want to eat their lunch uh, with a <laughs> tale from 1974. Yeah. 
and you have three Bernese Mountain Dogs now? I have three Bernese Mountain so Dogs. So you've moved on from Poodles. Yeah. Uh, we still, my, lots of people in my family still have them, but I have moved on to Bernese Mountain Dogs. Based off the way you described your parents in your childhood, it, it sounded almost magical. And I don't mean that to exaggerate anything, but the land and the animals, you talked about how you had a raccoon as a kid. You talked about your sister and I forgot the pet that she wanted that your mom let her have. She had a monkey briefly. Didn't work. Well. <laughs> yeah. But it just, I'm curious if that security and your parents kind of their strength and clarity and who they were, if that just gave you the confidence just to really say, screw it early on and be like, I'm going to go to Alabama and I'm going to be a sports writer because I mean, I didn't know that Columbia was the top ranked journalism school in the country. I found that out earlier this week, you know, obviously Harvard undergrad, Harvard law school. It seems like you were very quick to be like, screw this. I'm really going to go do what I love. And if it was maybe a different family or a different upbringing, I'm wondering if there would be more analysis by paralysis or however you'd want to say it. Well, some of that's true and some of it's not. So I think if I'd grown up in a different family, and this is where people talk about privilege, I really did was privileged. I didn't, you know, I, I'm one of nine kids, both parents doctors. And, you know, all like, for example, my brothers, Steve went to Yale and Harvard Law School. Ben went to Harvard College and Michigan Law School. Hugh went to Williams College and Harvard Medical School. I went to Harvard College, Harvard, Medi Harvard Law School, and Tim went to Yale and Harvard Business School. So it's a, a family that grew up, you know, that was the expectation. And, but it's also a family, like we didn't drive nice cars. My dad never spent more than $10,000 on a car, but I never worried about money. And I think it is a privilege to say, I'm going to leave this job making more than $100,000 as a, you know, second year lawyer. This was back in the 90s to go make 225 as a prep high school writer in Alabama. I think had I been first generation, you know, it was scraping to pay my bills. I don't think I would have done that. I think that was the privilege. I don't think it was confidence. It's a funny thing. Like all nine of us are reasonably successful in one way, shape or form. But I actually think it's because we were all trying to prove ourselves all the time. I really, we are not a touchy feely family. And the way we got approval was to get A's, you know, like there's nine kids, you're scraping for approval. Like you want to get attention because there wasn't a lot handed out. So the way you got attention was to get A's, to be all state and band, to whatever else. And so I think that created us as sort of overachieving monsters from that perspective. I mean, we're yeah. not monsters, but we all did overachieve from that perspective. And I think we were chasing approval. But then finally, it's interesting because I have a son right now who's 23 and he's going through this a little bit. I think it's really hard to figure out what you want to do with your life. We spend so much time thinking about what college do you want to go to or whatever? But the really hard question is what happens next? Like, what are you going to make your life's work? And we don't spend as much attention on that for some reason in our 20s. And I think it can be really hard. It wasn't confidence that allowed me to leave being a lawyer. I was miserable. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I don't know what a breakdown looks like, but I was close to one. And I had to stop being a lawyer because I was driving myself crazy. 
And I mean, I started taking antidepressants then. I was just a mess. And so I, I think I used to talk about it in a much different way. I said, oh, I didn't have the spring in my step that I thought I should have going off to work. And so I decided to try something else, <laughs> this and whatever else. But the truth of the matter is I was miserable. I was falling apart and I had to do something else with my life. And I didn't know that journalism was going to work 100%. Like people, everyone says, follow your bliss as if your bliss is over there, you know, and you know you can do it and you know you're going to love it. Most people would do that if they knew they would love it and they knew. But a lot of people don't know exactly. I knew that I didn't want to be a lawyer and then I thought I might have fun writing sports. But even up until probably two or three years into my new career writing sports, I didn't know if it was going to work. I didn't know if I was going to stick. I didn't, I thought about maybe going back to law. So I sometimes worry when people hear my story that it's too clean, too courageous. Too, and with the truth of the matter is like a lot of life, it actually, as it was unfolding, it was kind of messy and it's worked out beautifully. I'm really happy with the way it's worked out. I mean, you had to take an incredible amount of risk because I mean, you had Harvard undergrad and those scholarships or Harvard Law School, and then you had Columbia, then to go down to Alabama. So you assume that you had debt. I paid off my law school debt and made enough to pay for journalism, mostly in my years as a lawyer. I did not live high on the hog, and I saved a lot of money then. So I didn't have extensive debt. I had, I had debt, but I did not have debilitating debt. And then I also, here's the truth, is that Going to a place like Harvard has its pros and cons, but one of the pros is, is that it builds in a cushion. It's a luxury. If I had gone to, you know, Joe Smith Law School and then went to be a sports writer and then said, oh, this isn't for me, and one tried to go back to being a lawyer, they might say, what the hell are you, like, we're, we're not going to, you're not even committed to the law? What are you working as a high school sports? And no thanks. But because I, you know, I went to Harvard, I was on the Harvard Law Review, I clerked on the DC circuit, I did like all this stuff. I thought even they would excuse this weird, quirky thing that I did, and it would give you an extra, it would give me a cushion. And it really did. And not only that, then once I became a sports writer, there's no question in my mind that one of the reasons I was able to advance from a prep writer to a columnist in Memphis wasn't that I was that great. It was that deciding between me and someone else, this Harvard Law thing is kind of interesting and fun. And look who we just hired as our sports columnist, a guy who has a Harvard Law degree, look at us. And so I think that's what, what a place like Harvard does, in addition to exposing you to a whole bunch of interesting people who are doing interesting things in their lives. That's the other great advantage. Yeah. I know you're not monsters, but you talked about how you and your brothers, maybe your sister too, I didn't hear you say her or not, but that y'all were overachieving monsters, but you we know. were machines to overachieve. Like we did not. Yes, we all, and no one, no one picked another path. All nine, you know, believed in academic overachievement and professional achievement. So what's it like having three sons now? How do you live through that? Own it or not own it, but look back on for what it was, the way you talk about it. Then how do you think about the next generation? What is that like? Oh, it's funny because like all that overachieving has been passed down to the next generation. I have had just like 32 cousins, nieces and nephews in my family between the nine of us. And, you know, six of them have gone to Yale and five of them have gone to Harvard. And I mean, it's like, it's crazy. One gone to Dartmouth, one gone to Brown, whatever. I have tried to take the pressure off my kids. I really don't think there's a connection between you know, going to some elite college and happiness or whatever else. I, and it is hardwired into me a little bit. So 
I hope that I love my children unconditionally and, and that they feel that, but it's an interesting balance. Like I'm, I, there's no question. Like I'm the person in our family, I'm divorced and I'm still pals with Julia, my ex-wife, but I was the person in the family who was always, if a grade slips for a kid, I'm going to line up tutoring for them, or I'm going to get, make sure that they have coaching so they do well on their SATs. And like, I was me. So I still have that strain in me. And, but I try to fight against it a little bit because I don't always think it's healthy. And, um, you know, what is a life well lived? I, I, yeah, I don't think it has much to do with where you went to college. I'll put it out. <laughs> if you look at your work or read interviews that you've done, it seems like happiness for you was just reconnecting with stories and with sports from childhood. I mean, is that true? A and B, if somebody's introspective and they want to figure out what happiness looks like to them, I know we're not all the same, but would you at least consider or think that those experiences or those personality traits that we kind of exude early on, that that's how you kind of find that if somebody was really trying to figure that out and struggle, like the way you talked about it earlier? I think that's certainly true. I think for me, professional happiness and success, because you're better at what you like, right? If you like something, you're, you're more apt to be good at it too. One thing I like is talking to strangers, right? I really like talking to strangers, whether I'm at the grocery store and I'll try not to bother you on the airplane. I don't I haven't flown since COVID, but I know people find that irritating when the person in the seat next to them. But I actually like talking to the person in the seat next to me. I, I like talking to strangers. I like reading obituaries because I like people's stories. Um, and so it is probably my, it's just, it, it's, I ask a lot of questions of people all the time because I'm curious and I like storytelling. And so I did find a job where I could do that. I also, like I said, I was the, I was the kid who made mom laugh. Like I was the eighth of nine and I was kind of the mascot, you know, I was, a person who was telling jokes and making my, you know, making everyone crack up and whatever else. And this may not be attractive personality, but I like being the center of attention. Like some people hate it. Some people hate giving speeches and just want to be in the background. And not me. Like I wanted to, you know, I talk to rotary clubs all the time. I give speeches all the time. I like, I like being out there. And so at some point I draw up a list of things that I thought I might like to do and they were being a minister and being a high school principal. And if I was going to be a lawyer, I wanted to be a prosecutor, like a U.S. attorney or a, something like that, or a columnist or, and all of them, I was at the center. Like it was, it was, it was me giving sermons or it was me at the, writing a column or it was me as I wasn't going to be an English. I want to be the principal or it was me. And there is a, I, I'm a little rueful when I confess that because who the heck wants to admit that they need to be the center of attention, but like Robin, I know Robin Williams and, you know, but he wanted to, he was in his essence. He needed to be this, like, as he was, he was a performer in a very much more modest way in a more of a storytelling way. I am a performer. So I found myself. Yes. I was able to find something a profession that allowed me to do that and allowed me to be this sort of best, took advantage of what I like best and how I think of myself best. I think it's hard. I, I think I'm thinking about it now in connection to my eldest son. Would that be helpful with him? 
trying to figure out what he wants to do. He's in doing an investment banker right now in New York, first year investment banker in New York. And I would say he doesn't love it. So like, what does that mean? What would he connect with? I think it's a hard thing to go back and I wonder if it's easy to figure out in retrospect now that I've done it and it's worked out then in prospect as you sit and think about your own personal career if you are someone who are trying to figure out your own personal career in your 20s or young 30s. It's good. Hey everybody, we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. You've talked about how, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but along the lines that it's refreshing to meet athletes that have some amount of self-awareness and don't think they're completely the center of attention and being a, a journalist and a sports writer, sports editor here, and just having the following that you do, was there ever a point in time where you started to have fun with uh, athletes that were just arrogant or felt like just maybe treated you like crap or rude, maybe you and other journalists, et cetera. Like, is there any particularly funny stories that would be funny to share? Athletes now grow up so deified that they, you know, and particularly, by the way, it's it's mostly when I say that it's football and baseball and basketball and male athletes generally. And that's because they're deified by the, you know, by the time they, you know, are in fifth grade, you know, they're 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 treated differently. People hang on their every word. They they court them to come to their high school and then to their college and then whatever. And so I think it's and then they're pestered, too, all the time. They're pestered. So I think it's natural for athletes to get weary of asking questions. Whereas then there are other athletes, like one of my favorite teams I ever covered was the U.S. women's Olympic hockey team. It was the first time women's hockey was in the Olympics. And the U.S. team had played the Canadian team like 30 times going leading up to the Olympics because they're the two best teams. They just kept playing each other. And, And then they finally met for the gold. And... Like these women were so curious, so engaged. So the the goalie was a cellist from Dartmouth who couldn't have been more charming. I don't know whatever happened to her, but and they knew that when the game ended, that so they didn't. They'd never been treated differently, and so we root to the extent that athletes are, you know, uh, it, it, we ruin them, and it's kind of. It's always impressive to me, honestly, like take NBA players right now. I think they tend to be very engaging a lot. And I think that's to their credit because I don't think we've made it easy for them to be as down to earth and engaged in the world as they seem to be, honestly. I just could imagine, I don't know. I mean, 
I just had a picture of you just kind of having fun with it and just oh, there's using, using sarcasm. Yeah, there's some bad stories. Like there's, you know, we used to being a baseball writer was the worst. And you'd come walk into the into the clubhouse, and you know, the baseball players would move when the you know when the, <laughs> when the when, you know like we're animals or something. And so it's a little depressing from that perspective that they treat you like gum on the bottom of their shoe. But that's that's fine. You know, you just that that's the way it goes. And, I'm curious, what did the globe mean to you in your 20s while you're at undergrad in law school? And how for somebody that, let's say, in their 30, early 30s, where that aspect of journalism doesn't resonate or where it's hard to understand that if you if you don't live in a in a major market, can you put some context to it about what it means to you or how significant it was uh, for where you were then? Oh, well, the globe was one of the great sports sections of all time. And like, it's funny how many of them you still saw on TV. In the end, people end up on TV. Now they do. Um, but like Bob Ryan covered was, was, was on that. And Jackie McMullen was there. And Dan Shaughnessy was there. And Lee Montville was there. And a whole bunch of others. And it was just an incredibly literate staff. They were all real writers in addition to reporters. And you just like the sports section meant something. You'd, you'd like the, who's going to get the sports section? I want to get the trade around the sports section, me and my roommates. and. And then everyone wrote with different styles. I loved Lee Montville, who's now he's an author. He still writes books, but he's not an active journalist anymore as a newspaper journalist. Like, it's funny. I think even now people have the people they like to read. They just, it doesn't come, it's, it's, not, it's not paper that arrives on their driveway anymore. You know, it's, it's stories that arrive on their phone. And I mean, I still think like... Very, I don't know. You have things you read every place you go every day, like your websites yeah. you go to every day, and that's not unlike the role that the that the daily newspaper served then. And you know, the difference is is that now we can read anything from anywhere, and it's a much more abundant universe in in many ways. So, I think I just liked good writing, and there's lots of good writing out there today, and there was lots of good writing out there then. It's just. Um, the delivery system has changed, but then also the underlying economics have gotten much harder for local journalists. That's the other. That's the other underlying issue here is that it's not just that the delivery systems have changed. In the process of changing, it's sort of undermined local journalism in a very damaging way. Those journalists that you love in the Globe were they a lot more critical of teams and? figures, et cetera, at that time. You've talked about how Memphis is kind of, a, and you didn't say this in a derogatory way, but you talk about how you have to appeal more to the emotion of people and you have to kind of transcend sports alone. But you said that there's like markets that are actually more sensitive or softer compared to other major markets where you can be more blunt, more maybe critical, or it's more chip on your shoulder, or however you want to take it. Yeah, I don't think that Boston wasn't that hard hitting a place. It was somewhat, I think New York is a slightly more hard hitting place, caustic, uh, hypercritical. Um, Philadelphia has a quite a reputation for being that. But the truth of the matter is, even within that, there are people at all those places, everyone finds their own voice, right? And so Bob Ryan wrote one way, and Jackie McMullen wrote another way, and Dan Shaughnessy wrote another way. And then Lee Montville wrote another way. The columns that I, that when I talk about Lee Montville or Mitch Album, like Mitch Album did write critical columns, just like I write critical columns, but he was best at writing about people. And like, there's another guy named Joe Poznanski, who's, I don't even know where he is now. He's written for the Kansas City paper. He's written for Sports Illustrated. He's written all over the place. 
and Joe, same thing. Joe likes writing about people and writing about, and, and I don't think that's entirely an accident of place. I think it's different people have different styles. And so there are some people, and then, and then, and also it's true that some of the hard hitting stuff can be forced like Skip Bayless on ESPN. He wakes up every day and he's angry at something and it all feels forced, you know, to take on, to rip LeBron about this and to rip, like, what's the point of that? I, 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 I think there's too much angry shouting as it is. And so I don't want to angry shout just an angry shout. And so I guess even in Boston, which might have been a little more hard hitting than Memphis, there were people who were best at writing about humanity. And those are the people who I was drawn to. Did it take you a while to get comfortable for you to write the way that you hear it? You've talked about your love for stories, love for people. You, you will be critical when you feel like you need to be critical. But generally, you try to do more good in the world than negativity. But I'm just curious, was there a period of time where you felt like maybe you had to be somebody else? No, I think, but I, no, I think this is true, though. I think you do find your voice. And what I urge people to do is just read, 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 read. You know, read as much as you can from whoever you can. And then I would read Mitch Albums. Let me see if I have any here. I would read Mitch Albom's collection of columns. He had like three of them. And I would study him. I'd think, okay, this is how he wrote about someone. How did he do this? Like, what was the structure? What words did he use? What was his voice? What was his, how did he do this that made me this feel this way? And then, honestly, early on in my days as a columnist, sometimes I would bring one of his books in my backpack and before a game, I'd sit there and read three of his columns to sort of try to channel the, the you know, the spirit of Mitch Album. And then after a while, your voice becomes, you know, it's sort of like people say, like with singing, you sort of steal until it becomes your own. You steal from this and borrow from this and a little bit from this and a little bit from that. And then after a while, it becomes your own. And so I think that's how my voice developed to the extent that I have one. It was from seeing what I thought worked from other people and then, uh, you know, trying it out for myself as much as I could and, and figuring it out. And I still do some of that actually. Yeah. I know you've talked about, I believe if I have it correctly, that you've kind of written about other things, obviously other than sports over the last year because of COVID. And I believe you've talked about how the data engagement, you know, was really strong on those articles that you've written. I'm just curious are you having to adapt your own style either through your work with the Daily Memphian or through your radio show to continue to try to just navigate the media and print and, and journalism landscape and how fast things are moving right now? I don't necessarily adapt my style. There's no question you adapt. First pre-COVID, let's just let's take the way the media is is changing. I now write about things like once upon a time because we know so much of the data. Once upon a time, Memphis had a tennis tournament. And I would go out there on a Monday, and it went from Monday to Sunday, and I'd write a column every single day from the tennis tournament because it was a big Civic Memphis event, et cetera. And it would be in the commercial appeal, and it would slap down on people's driveways, and that was it. Well, once we started to get online journalism, and then we started to get, we knew how many people clicked on stories, and we knew how many long they stayed in stories, and we knew everything about them. What it re revealed to me was, holy crap, no one reads tennis columns. <laughs> and so then I'd say, well, why am I writing them? 
And so then I would say, I'm just going to write like one, you know, I'll write, or maybe one at the beginning of the week and one at the end of the week. And then there's another thing that's true is like urgency. Like I wrote a column today and I wanted to get it up quickly because people are talking about the thing today. It's about a Memphis basketball schedule issue. And so there's some urgency to get it up. And you so they got screwed, right? I didn't read the article, but I just saw the headline. Yeah, they, they got screwed in some scheduling thing. So, so I wanted to get that up quickly. And then, you know, you want a headline that's catchy because you want people to read it. Um, and so like last year before COVID, sports columns were always the most read columns at the Daily Memphian. Like they were always, unless it, occasionally something else, but we, we knew what was. Well, I don't think in the world of COVID that sports has mattered as much to people. I think it's just in the hierarchy of needs, it's, it was a luxury if we were going to argue about, you know, one sporting event or another. Like now people are thinking about vaccines and, you know, social distancing and, and all of this stuff. And so I pretty much, I'd say about half of my columns this year have been columns about something other than sports. And my radio show has been, you know, it's still a sports radio show, but I've had epidemiologists on. I've had the mayor on and I've had my best friend in the world knows nothing about sports. He's an author uh, and I have him on every week. And so just to talk about the world. And so I have broadened out what I talk about, but it's been nice because I mean, I don't say COVID has been nice, but I actually, after 25 years of writing exclusively about sports, really 30 years of writing exclusively about, uh, largely about sports, I actually do care about the world beyond sports as well. So in some ways, that part of it has been refreshing. How do you think that'll stick with you as we come out of COVID when that happens? I'll still write more about, I mean, I always, there was a time at the commercial appeal where they tried to get me to write one general interest column a week. Like I, I, I've never limited myself exclusively to sports, but like my buddy, my buddy, Charles Fishman is the author. He wrote that book about, was it Walmart? He has one about Walmart, one about water, one about the moon landing, one about, he's written three New York Times bestsellers. He was my best college friend and, and he's great, but I could never have him on the radio show before. That was like, he loves nothing about sports. But then I had to start having him on during COVID twice a week. And now he's sort of a personality and I continue, I will continue to have him on. Like we were talking about water this week on a sports talk show, but we were talking about, you know, cause Memphis's water supply had been interrupted. And so we literally yeah. just about water. So I'll continue to do more of it. I do think when we're not concerned with life and death as much and the economy crashing as much or whatever, jobs, I think sports will ascend again and be more important. And so I'll write about it, you know, more at that point. But but even now, like we have a lot of sports and I do still write a lot of sports, but my interests have certainly broadened. Curious, what do you think the odds were for Daily Memphian to actually make it work in this day and age? As a startup? Oh, well, I mean, when they approached me to jump from the commercial appeal to the Daily Memphian, I said I would only do it if I had a contract. I've never had a contract before. Like, that's not how newspapers work. You work at the pleasure of the newspaper. Um, but I have a pretty, I said, I need a contract. I've got kids I got to pay for tuition and I need a contract because I don't know if this is going to work. Like, they want, I think they've said they want 25,000 subscribers. It wasn't even, we used to, I think it used to be 15,000, but whatever, 25,000 subscribers. And I'm like in Memphis, can we get that? I mean, that's a, the, the, the commercial appeal, which has been here for forever. You know, I don't know how many, I don't know how many digital subscribers only they have 13,000 or 12,000 or something. And so, 
So I wanted a contract. I mean, I liked the idea of it and I didn't want to work for Gannett anymore, but I was not at all persuaded that it would absolutely work. And it's been very successful in the sense that we are now up to 15,000 subscribers and we don't give away, you know, uh, buy six months for a buck kind of thing, you know, with the, you have to really want to subscribe. And, and so people around the journalistic world are astonished that we've done as well as we've done, but we still have a ways to go. And, um, you know, we're not to 25,000 subscribers and, but it's an interesting model because what's happened is, is that as all the advertising has been gone to, you know, Google and, and uh, Facebook and whatever else, they've peeled off all the advertising. All the local advertising has basically gone away. Once upon a time, if you wanted to sell or buy a house, car, job, personal, anything else, you had to advertise in the newspaper. Yeah. Well, that's no longer true. And so the underpinnings, the economic underpinnings of local newspapers have been have been disemboweled. And so, so now we're trying to come up with a new system that will work. And it's a combination of, it's a 501c3. So we take donations. It's a nonprofit. Uh, we do have some advertising, but then subscriptions, and hopefully it'll be a durable journalistic outlet. I will say that one thing it has certainly done, it has raised the game. You know, the commercial appeal has to compete now. And so I think the commercial appeal is better for it. And the Daily Memphian is better for it. And right now we're one of the few markets where you have two, you know, comp- two, certainly of this size, two competitive print, you know, news outlets. And when you say raise the game, compete by it being the only game in town, what was lacking or what was just mediocre that you're talking about the way the Kirsch appeal operated that they've had to step up to compete with the Daily Memphian now? My feeling when I left was that we were in Memphis were an afterthought, that it was run primarily out of Nashville. The big calls were made out of Nashville and that in Memphis, they were just cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and not particularly attentive to Memphis's needs. And I gather that that has changed. They've hired some good young people over there. Like I have great respect for a lot of the people over there working there. And so I think, and then I have heard anecdotally, others may disagree, and I don't want to speak out of turn here, that whereas Gannett has cut and continues to cut, uh, and I have made cuts at the commercial appeal, that there would have been even more cuts at the commercial appeal, except for the fact that they're in a competitive situation. And the fact that they're a competitive situation, Gannett is aware of that and it spares them to some extent. But I think we're better off with both of us is what I mean. Yeah, but you're just kind of laying out the classic kind of example of a roll up and looking at markets and putting resources and things back into certain markets and others not potentially getting what they need. And you felt that squeeze and others did, obviously. We certainly felt like we were being neglected at the time. I, I, I absolutely felt. Just curious. I mean, and again, I don't, I'm not trying to frame this. I'm make sure when I edit it, it doesn't come out this way. I'm not trying to slander them or that. I was just curious through your own life experience, but I read the column that you wrote when you left and I think you were there 22 years. I mean, how many years were you kind of wrestling through where you were going to end up or what you were going to be doing as you felt that squeeze? Oh, I don't think I really was because you noticed that the job wasn't as much fun anymore. And that's certainly true. And I, you noticed that you were apologizing for the commercial appeal all the time. People would approach me in the community and say, how come you don't? How come you don't? How come you don't? How come you don't? How come you don't get scores from the night before and anymore? How come you don't? Whatever. And I just, you know, it was, you know, but I, I wouldn't have laughed 
Hey, I still loved the job. You know, I still loved writing for the daily newspaper. I wasn't looking around thinking where I was going to go next. And I also felt like at the time, and I may have been wrong, but that if they were throwing people out of the lifeboat, that just because of how long I'd been there and, and that I have a pretty high profile job, that I would be one of the last thrown out of the light lifeboat. I mean, I, I think had I not left on my own, I imagine I'd still be there. I don't think I would have been laid off. You know, the guy who replaced me is tremendous. Mark Giannato is a friend of mine and, and is very good. You know, he's key to their operation over there. So I think I'd still be uh, doing what I'm doing, um, but, but at the commercial appeal. And then I'm 59. And so I guess I would have once imagined that I would be doing this till I was 80. And just, you know, you see some columnists in big markets who, write once a week or something Furman Bisher in Atlanta and Edwin Pope in Miami, they kept writing into their eighties. And I could have imagined that at one point. Now I'm very clear that whether I'd stayed there or been where I am, I'm 59 when I'm 70, I won't still be writing columns. I'm pretty clear of that now. And so, but between now and then when I'll tail off, I don't know. And you've written one book. Have you written more than one book? I haven't really written a book. I've written a book only in the sense that I took a whole bunch of my columns and collected them together into a book and, uh, and stapled them together and sold it. It's called after the jump. <laughs> and, uh, it's, you know, it's actually very well done, very well put together, beautiful book, but it is, I didn't write it in any sense of the word. I, I wrote the columns one by one over a period of 20 years. And, um, and then I assembled them into a book and it did very well and it's been fun to do, but I really did it most of all, because I wanted to collect the columns into a book and be able to dedicate it to my parents and put it in their hands while they were still around. And so I did that. And it was from that perspective, very gratifying. Yeah. It's powerful. I read your article about your parents in Disney world. It's very moving when you read how you talk about your parents. And I mean, I've got three or four pages over here, just notes that I read about you and what you learned from them and their different personalities. Your mom, when I guess her hospital became a, was it a behavioral, like a correction facility or something? First she was, at first it was a mental hospital and she was a general practitioner at a mental hospital for a long time. And then they turned it into a prison and then she became a prison doctor for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Curious. You've talked about one of the biggest misconceptions for people that come out of Harvard is you think people are just going to shower you with a bunch of money, which I know we have talked about opportunity coming out of Harvard. But one of the other things that you've talked about is just how you love what you do because it, it's based upon the merit of the quality of your work. I'm just curious to kind of maybe hear you say a few things, if you're open to it, just about how that sense of meritocracy or letting the work speak for itself or quality, even competition between papers and things like that. Why do you appreciate it? Or how have you kind of embraced that to really try to produce the best work that you possibly can? Well, first of all, on the money stuff, I, there's, I think it's bracing for any kid to get out of college and out into the world and realize, oh, the world isn't like just waiting for me to get here. And with, you know, <laughs> with, with, isn't going to just celebrate my greatness. And um, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I went to Harvard college, Harvard law school, Harvard law review, Columbia university clerked on the DC circuit. And I applied for newspaper jobs and I worked for summers. I worked for Time Life one summer and Miami Herald one summer. And, and I applied for newspaper jobs. And this is back when there were newspaper jobs all over the country. 
And literally the only job I got was in Anniston, Alabama. So, and then you got to decide, I'm a Yankee. Am I going to up and move to small town Anniston, Alabama? And so I think it's bracing for anybody to get out of college and to realize, oh God, I got to start here. And so you don't get to start at writing, being a columnist, you know, and, uh, and then translated in any other business, you don't get to start at the top. And so I think that's bracing for everyone in terms of the meritocracy. I think the thing is that there is a point that being a journalist or a writer, it's like an athlete in this way that, yeah, work is, you got to work hard and have drive and all of that. But there is a certain amount of, you either can do it or you can't. Like there's a certain amount of talent involved. And I say, it's a little bit like if you want to be an actor, go ahead, go to Hollywood, try to make it because you're going to kick yourself if you don't for two or three or five years or whatever. But don't count on it because it's really hard. Because in the end, you got to get lucky and you have to, in the end, have some, uh, you know. And so, and I think being a writer is a little bit like that. I, when I was, had been in Anniston, Alabama for a year, writing for a year, I had my sports editor there, Joe Distelheim, who had been a sports editor in Detroit and knew a lot of big people in the business. I went to him and I said, could you send my clips to your friends, some of your friends and, and, and have them tell me, do I have what it takes? And I got some encouragement, some discouragement, but I just wanted to know because I wasn't going to stay in it if I was going to make 225 a week for forever, as much as I loved it. I just wasn't. It wasn't sustainable. So in the end, your ability, uh, you know, you it, it, it does matter. And you are judged based on not your grades, although go ahead and study hard, kids, not what school you went to, but back in the day, you'd send a clip file and it'd be a package of clips, maybe eight stories you'd written and people would read it and they'd say, okay, we want to interview this guy. Or they'd say, eh, it doesn't jump off the page. I don't. It's like an artist in the end. Like you send your portfolio of, of things you've, you know, photos you've taken or things you've painted. It's very similar. Yeah. I looked up Aniston because I, I didn't know where it was. I see it's outside Atlanta. Were you covering it, stuff in Atlanta or were you actually only covering stuff in it, Aniston? Cause I'm uh, wondering. It's, it's pretty much immediately between Atlanta and Birmingham. It's, it's, uh, it's smack dab between them. And it was still a couple hours from Atlanta or an hour and a half or two hours. We would go to Atlanta occasionally for like, I covered a Super Bowl and I covered a master's golf tournament, whatever, but mostly it was Jacksonville state, which is the university there and Oxford high school and Aniston high school. And that's what I was covering. And then Auburn, Auburn and Alabama football too. And so that was really the biggest thing we covered. We covered Auburn and Alabama. Gotcha. I was wondering why he came from Detroit to Aniston, but maybe that's- uh, he was actually, he was the sports editor in Detroit and he was the editor of the entire enterprise in Aniston. So that's why. Do you think, I know you talked about if you won the lottery, you'd stop your radio show and just keep writing for the paper as a journalist or sports editor, but do you anticipate writing any books in the near future? No, because, well, first of all, I don't know that that's true anymore. It's been an interesting evolution. Like I once considered radio to be a pain in the ass and a way to make some extra money and the newspaper to be what I was really loved and good at. Writing is hard work. Talking is less hard, uh, truthfully. And 
And now the audience, because whether I was at still at the CA or at the Daily Memphian, I think more people hear me than read me at this point. So I don't know what I'd do if I were to stop one or the other. I make more money from writing than I do talking, but talking's easier. And in some ways, I think I have a bigger audience there. Writing a book is a totally different, and again, I say this because my best friend Charles Fishman is a, write books all the time. It's a different enterprise. Like it's, I need the daily deadlines to get me to write. You know, I need, I have a deadline every day and I need to write. And so that's the job. Without it, I don't have the discipline to just sit down and write in the abstract. Uh, <laughs> I suppose if I found a book that I was passionate about, I might develop that. But no, at the moment, I don't see a book in my future. And you talked about early on when you started your radio show, I think you're with Gary Parrish, right, on his show when you, before? You uh, before that, I was with George Lapidus on his show. Then Gary and I did a show together called The Jeff and Gary Show, that was on 7.30 or think AM. And then uh, for various reasons, we then honestly, because I was going to be, a, we, we moved to an FM station and they wanted an afternoon drive show. In the afternoon, I was being a dad. So I couldn't do the Jeff and Gary show. So it became Gary's show. And I just came on for 20 minutes. It was the Gary Paris show with Jeff Hawkins. And now I do my own show in addition in the morning. Yeah. So it's kind of an evolution. Well, I just, I read that you had said that you wanted your own sensibilities to kind of pursue those. And, and I, I guess just my hunch from what we've talked about today, just your view of the world, even today, how you've talked about covering COVID, how you've talked about just the world at large, the economy, et cetera. It seems like obviously your own style, which I, I don't follow Gary, but I've heard this, that he doesn't stick to sports only by any means, but it's like you wanted to put your own twist on how you see the world and how you hear it and, and bring that into your show. Yeah, I mean, I did that. Gary and I see the world pretty in pretty similar ways. Really, what happened was is that I was doing the show with him, and and he, the truth matters, you make more money if you have your own show. Like that's the truth. So they paid me a modest amount to do to be a guest on Gary's show, and then they started. Let's do a morning show, and I could do the morning show because my kids were in school in the morning. I couldn't do full time the afternoon show. And so it was really more that than anything than my desire to have my own sensibility. I hope I've gotten better at radio than I was when I first started. I'm feeling more comfortable with radio than I was when I first started. And I enjoy it more than I did when I first started. Yeah. Curious, just with how you were talking about Aniston, did at any point, I know you said that you sent out clips and you asked your boss if he could use his network to see if, if they thought you were potentially good enough to make it. But did, at any point during that time, did you think about quitting and going back to law or B, were there any things that you were telling yourself to get through that season, to continue to kind of make that radical change and pursue it where the future was unclear, unlike now where you can look back and just see all the things that have happened because of it? I didn't think like on a Wednesday, am I going to keep doing this tomorrow? Like it wasn't ever that immediate, but I was, okay. I'm doing this for a while. It is unsustainable. And the truth of the matter is, I was a newlywed in Anniston, Alabama. And my ex-wife, who had gone to Duke, and we met in Washington, D.C., she was not very happy in Anniston, Alabama. She did follow me, and I give her incredible credit for being supportive. But there wasn't much for her to do. She's really smart. There wasn't much for her to do there. And there wasn't much social life there. And I was gone every weekend writing about sports. So there did come a time when she said, all right, I'll give you like a year to find another job. 
And then I'm going to start or six months or something. I don't know what it was, which is what inspired me to apply for another newspaper job, which is how I ended up in Miami. And then at least when we were in Miami, there were more jobs that she could do that would be satisfying for her. So it wasn't like, oh, am I going to quit tomorrow? But there was definitely a feeling of, hmm, let's give this a while and see how it goes. And if it doesn't go well, I can always go back to being a lawyer. Yeah. I just know there's a lot of people, they want to do something. They just, they feel scared to really pull the kind of rip the bandaid off and go after it. And that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways, whether it's trying a book or changing jobs or, you know, going back to school or, I mean, I get a lot of messages like that throughout the month, but I think specifically like career changes like this, when somebody feels comfortable, they feel comfortable with the, with the money, they feel comfortable with where their career's at and they get to their thirties and they're just like, you know, where's this going? I do think it's important to do this stuff, you know, before you have kids, you know, that, that creates a different dynamic. So try different stuff when you're young, I do think is, is critical. And now for me, I wasn't young, but I was 30. I was on the cusp of no longer being young when I, when I switched. And again, I had the comfort with not having a lot of debt and I didn't have kids at the time. And, but it's interesting. I have gotten over the years because people know my story, former lawyer turned sports writer, blah, blah, blah. So I hear from lawyers all the time who are unhappy and how do I do what you do? And it's hard. I don't know what to tell them exactly. And it's also different paths for different people. Like for me, I had to quit being a lawyer because I wasn't going to write on the side. I didn't have the discipline or whatever. I had to quit being a lawyer, go to journalism school, put myself fully into it, right? Other people are able to do things on the side. And if you have the discipline and the ability to do that, like Clay Travis, who I now abhor as a uh, radio host, and I think he's evil and whatever else, but he was a he was a lawyer who started writing about the SEC football and whatever, and he continued to be a lawyer until his writing and talking, he's on the radio as well, um, got to be so successful that it was sustainable. So that's another way to do it. I, I had a lawyer once who called me from Chicago, and I said, you know, I told him what I did and whatever. Well, what he ultimately did was he wrote a magazine story about law school for like Chicago Magazine. And that got him a gig with Chicago Magazine. And then he started working for Chicago Magazine. And then he wrote a series of successful best-selling books. And he's like, off he goes. Like it, and so different people do it in different ways. And so, I, I mean, I don't have any great advice about it, except for, you know, I, I did have the advantage that I felt like I wasn't ruining my kid's life if I went and did this at this point yet. I didn't have them. And I did feel like I could go back to being a lawyer. The other thing, though, is it just becomes at some point, people become so intensely unhappy that they don't have any choice but to do something else. That is it wasn't for me courage. It was, you know, I was becoming an intense hypochondriac. I was kind of, you know, unraveling. And um, so that's really what drove me out as much as anything. Yeah, that's good. Just curious. You seem like a complete straight shooter. So this kind of sentiment of it, it doesn't sound like it would come from this place of a facade or anything like that. But when you talk about happiness, you've talked about from a career standpoint, and obviously I would assume you have a lot of opportunities to go to much larger markets around the United States. But what is it about Memphis itself that you've written about so much? How can you define the happiness that you feel that makes you content to stay here and continue to be here and, and just to be so 
deep into the community. I'm curious how what that happiness is for you that plays out where you live in addition to the way we've talked about from a career standpoint. Well, I think it looks like both micro and macro. Do you like what you do every day? You know, do I like, and fundamentally I do. I get up and I prepare for a radio show for two hours and then I talk on the radio show for two hours and then I try to think of something to write about and I get to talk to interesting people. And so on a micro sense, do I like what I do every day? And the answer is yes. And then in the macro sense, do I feel like what I'm doing is what I'm meant to be doing and has some value to the, you know, you know, I'm not certainly curing cancer or creating a vaccine for COVID, but do I feel like it has some broader value? Like, you know, if I step back and the answer there is yes. And so, yeah, so I, there's not much doubt in my mind what professional happiness looks like. Now I'm still, if I go a week without writing a, you know, I, I, let's, I honestly thought I was, I, I haven't written many columns this week. And so I was feeling kind of bad about myself because I haven't, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years and I can still feel bad about myself if I haven't written a good column in the last three days. And so I still measure myself every day by the job I'm doing, which is probably a pathology. But fundamentally, it's easy for me to say that I'm happy professionally. And then there's the, the place where that intersects with the personal. And I don't know how much, you know, I'm a single, I'm single now. My kids are grown. I'm, I'm in this empty nest. And I'm thrilled that I that I had was able to raise the kids that I have, and that I'm still. They seem to be turning out okay. But in a perfect world, like my parents were married, and not always blissfully, but they were married. I don't know. Like they were married until Dad died. You know, seventy some years until Dad died at ninety nine last year, and Mom's ninety six. And so, I don't have the successful personal life that they had. I just, I just don't. You know, and. And so you sort of figure all of that out and you hope you've done okay. Um, I have a friend who has a, who has a brain tumor now and he, he talks about it and his, you know, he, he has a kid who's autistic and he says, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes in life. He said, but I think like what I did for my autistic son might redeem me, you know? So I think we all look for the ways in which we've fallen short and the ways in which we have done well. And we hope that, you know, that we do more good than, than harm. But professionally, it's pretty obvious for me. I, I like what I do every day. And I feel like in some macro sense that it's got at least some kind of value. Yeah. Have you ever viewed people on a hierarchy from a, either from a, like if you were to meet or hang out with Robert Para, or if you're going to hang out with some wealthy business guy or girl, or woman, or you're going to meet some famous athlete, whatever, or you, I mean, you've got a huge following around the country some other parts of the world, but, and with your educational background, have you always looked at mankind just kind of like we're all the same or did it take some years to kind of deconstruct a perspective where like your friend whose kid who had autism and how he, like the significance that that person feels about the work that he did for his child and your relationship with him and kind of your respect for him, the way you described it. That's funny. I, like people ask the question all the time, you know, that, that hypothetical question, who would you, what famous people would you most like to have dinner with? And the answer is none. Like, I, I don't want to just hang out with famous people because they're famous people. Indeed, I generally think they don't want to have dinner with me. Why do I want to have dinner with them? Like, if <laughs> I, I mean, like, I'll just be bothering them. Like, I don't want to impose on them. I don't, I'm never someone who's been collected autographs or anything like that. I'm, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think certain people are fantastic people who do great things in the world. And I think, you know, I think very well of those people. And then there's, a, you know, and honestly, I will tell you that this, the last four years, I've struggled with how little regard I have for what some, for the way that some people view the world, which becomes obvious on Facebook and social media and whatever else. So I'm not saying that I'm some, I think everyone's great kumbaya, whatever else. But I do think fundamentally that most of us want the same things. And I try to see that. And I try to focus on the ways in which the universal truths to some extent. And so, but I don't know that I had to deconstruct much. My dad was, my dad was kind of an academic snob. My mom is just not at all like the reverse of that. And so I didn't grow up in a fancy town. Like Hamburg, New York is a very blue collar place. And a lot of steel workers there. That's sort of, and I didn't really think we were, you know, particularly fancy. So from that perspective, I didn't have to deconstruct much. And I'm, I don't really have much need to hang out with the fanciest people. I'd rather <laughs> hang out with my dogs. And I guess that's why I was trying to flesh it out. Cause it just seems like you don't really, you just don't care about that stuff. And probably somebody that did care would have jumped out of town immediately when they come in and write a critical column of Fred Smith. <laughs> and uh, that was probably a, a, a tough one to swallow early on, but it just seems like you've had a, just the way you talk about your work, your career, you just, you have a dedication to the craft and you have a confidence in what you're doing. And it's not like you, the way that well, you talk- I, also, I, I also have some insecurity in what I'm doing. And I think that drives a lot of it too. Like I think I have some friends who, would write things and folks I've worked with before who would write things and they, they think it's just the best thing ever. And then I have other colleagues who I've worked with who are constantly insecure. Like I had a friend, Scott Cassiola, who worked with Commercial Appeal for a while. He's now at the New York Times. And he thought everything he wrote was garbage. And he was great. It just tremendous. And you, you can see it. He's now at the New York Times writing great stuff. I think insecurity, particularly in like maybe in, in arts and in writing craft drives to some people, you know, you're maybe in sales too. Maybe if you get comfortable as a salesperson, you're not going to be working higher than the person who's always worried that the next sale is going to, you know, and I'm someone who worries about the next column is not going to be any good. And then I like, yeah, I have some confidence, but I have a, a productive amount of insecurity about my work. I'll say that. Do you beat yourself up hard when you write, like you've talked about writing a bad column you, under a tight deadline, you got to move on, but I don't know. Do you beat yourself up when you do that? Or are you able to move on still quickly and compartmentalize it? No, I, I definitely, I beat myself up as a little strong. I feel great anxiety if I haven't written anything good in a while and I can feel it building, you know, for me that it's a little bit of just constant, like there's a tiger chasing me and I keep throwing, you know, slap <laughs> there. And if I have the dinner columns and if I, if I haven't thrown enough slabs of meat back there, the tiger's going to get me. And so I have to keep throwing them out there. That's the job. And if it's a great column, then it's a particular, then it's a particularly fat zebra that'll make, may slow them down for a while. If it's kind of a crappy column, that's just data, whatever, then, you know, then I've just thrown him a little raccoon that he's going to scoop up, whatever. So that's kind of how I think about my job. I'm constantly anxious about it, but beat myself up. That's a little strong, but I have great anxiety about it all the time. Do you think there's a freedom that comes if you're able to work through that anxiety or do you feel like that anxiety will always be there? For me, it's pretty much always been there. You know, 
the truth of the matter is I don't really have to worry about my job at the Daily Memphian, knock on wood, or whether they're judging me at the Daily Memphian or whatever, but I'm judging myself. And that's a little cliche to say, but it's just true. Like I, I something like, why am I, why does it upset me when I write, only write two columns in a week and they're not that great? Like, is anyone else there counting? But I, so it is not that liberating. What would be liberating? I don't know what would be liberating. I, I sometimes think if I stopped, that would be liberating. Or if I took less money and said, I'm only going to give you two columns a week, and that might ease the bit of pressure that I put on myself. Because I know I've given back some money and I'm like, okay, you're not, you know. So I think about that because I don't like being consumed by my work. I love my work, but I don't like the necessarily the anxiety that I constantly feel that drives me. Last question I got, you know, you've said you're 59 and you said you used to see yourself writing when you were 80, but you don't see that happening anymore. Yeah. When you think about your work as a journalist, as a sports editor and with the radio show, et cetera, and everything else you do, what's the kind of legacy that you want to continue to create and produce? Or do you even think about a legacy and how you kind of want to leave your mark? I don't think I'm big enough to have a legacy, but I, I'll tell you what I like. So I wrote a column once about this family and the grandmother or mother of this family. There was a mother and a daughter. And the daughter was trying to get pregnant and uh, couldn't get pregnant. And then finally, she got pregnant with triplets. And basically the same day, the mother was diagnosed with cancer. And so they went through this together. And the mother got sicker and sicker. The triplets were born. And they got to a point where the mother, they had a stroller with the triplets in it, a, a three baby stroller. And then the mother was in a wheelchair and they would neighborhood at night go out and they would have a little parade around the neighborhood, go for a walk. And the whole neighborhood would come out and walk behind this mother and then her daughter and the triplets. And it was sweet and it was sad. And the mom ended up dying. They had on one weekend, they had the funeral service on a Friday and then the christening of those triplets on a Sunday in the same church. And that to me, it was life and death and renewal and everything sort of all wrapped up into one. And I wrote a column about that family and they ended up framing the column and putting it uh, on their wall. This family did the, the mom with the triplets and the triplets, as they grew up, they would point to the picture of their grandmother and say, that's grandma. And to me, that's the legacy, the legacy of having written about and captured lives in a way that is meaningful for people. Um, Some people might remember it. Some people won't. But that's what the legacy is. It's not some grand legacy in Memphis or whatever else. I'm just a sports writer after all. But if I write about people's families or experiences in a way that resonates with them and with others, that's what I'll be thrilled to have done. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe to the show, follow me on social, and join me on this curiosity-fueled journey so that you can feel that same sense of purpose and see the opportunities that are right for you. All of this at drivenbypodcast.com. See you next time on the Driven By Podcast. Podcast.